Reading from Mark. And Jesus went on to teach them many things about himself, how the Son of Man would suffer, how he would be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, how he would be killed, and how after three days God would raise him from the dead. He said all these things in front of them all, but Peter took Jesus aside to rebuke him. Jesus, seeing his disciples surrounding them, said, Get behind me, you tempter. You're only thinking of human things, not of the things God has planned. He gathered the crowd and his disciples alike. If any one of you wants to follow me, you will have to give yourself up to God's plan. Take up your cross and do as I do. For any one of you who wants to be rescued will lose your life. But any one of you who loses your life for my sake and for the sake of this good news will be liberated. Really, what profit is there for you to gain the whole world and lose yourself in the process? What can you give in exchange for your life? The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Okay, so this is the new new discovery for me. It's called The Voice. And um, this is not to negate all of the wonderful scripture that's led us all our lives. But it's a translation that for me just wakes, wakes me up, wakes my spirit up. So it's called The Voice step into the story of scripture and you heard how differently the scriptures that you think you know were uh, read this morning first of all it is an honor actually a great responsibility that you would trust me enough to share this pulpit and I appreciate that as you can tell By the title, (laughs) the sermon is about being in the garden, being in a garden. A garden implies growing something, but the subtitle that you don't know yet of this in the garden, in my father's garden, is that growth is the evidence of life. You'll understand why I use this phrase in a few minutes. But the providence value that I am going to talk about today is growth. And as I was reading it here on the front, what does it say? More like an underground root system. Well, I can sit down now. If you'll just read the growth uh, paragraph, you'll get it. Um, Leonard Bernstein, you know who he is, he wrote... Passion, without passion, without passion, there is no creativity. When I read that, I wrote it down and made a sign and put it in my first studio when I thought that I was going to become the next, probably Picasso. I was a little off. <laughs> but, uh, but think about 
passion. Think about the passion of God in creation. The editors of the voice translation that I'm using today write of God's passion out of nowhere. Time, space, all the living, whirled forth as God spoke the universe into existence. With the utterance of his voice, creation took form. Chaos yielded to order. Light eclipsed darkness. And emptiness, emptiness was filled with life. I chose the Genesis scripture because God's intention in creation is order, light, and life. It is perfection and wholeness. That is the created intention. It is the perfect garden. Pardon the Eden pun. But let's hear a little more about God's passion. He goes on to do something even more amazing. God says, now let us create a new creation. Humanity, made in our image, fashioned according to our likeness. So God did just that, boom, with his voice. He created humanity in his image, created the male and female, and God blessed them. My friends, the crown of God's creation was this new creature, this creature that sounded the very heartbeat of God. This creature that reflected God's own relational richness. It is the human family. I repeat, family. He created humanity as a family. And he asked that family to assist him with the ongoing work of creation. Well, you know the rest of the Genesis story. That first family kind of messed it all up. Between the fruit and murder and what Noah's generation and the Tower of Babel, things went to the garbage pile quickly. As a result, that first family and its descendants took us that divine creation out of perfection and into death. I tell you this morning, God did not give up at that point, at the end of Genesis. I tell you this morning that that flame of God's passion would not be off-put by our choices of sin and disobedience. Throughout history, God continually sent angelic help leadership, prophets, the law, even divine intervention to reveal the divine self and reveal the intention of creation. Again and again, people would get the aha. They'd see for but a minute and then return to self-interest and the vestige we call sin. We're in the final weeks of uh, Epiphany. 
the time the church has set aside for us to, to, to understand fully the meaning of the Christmas story of incarnation, enfleshment. It is as close as God can come to us to be one of us. And I truly believe the road that God intended for Jesus was to become the one who would lead us back to divine intention. Jesus came to plant our roots back in that original Eden soil. But even Emmanuel, even God, the divine self, was rejected by pride, our pride, our need for control, our need for power. The final event of God's original intention to defeat sin and death was actually, in the the end, accomplished through death and resurrection. I chose the Mark 8 scripture because Jesus is asking us to return to God's original intention for our lives and to follow it. In following, we are to assist God not only in creation, but now we're called to assist God in salvation and bringing God's divine will to earth. Mark 8 said, to follow God's path and take up your cross, you must follow me. What does that mean? Does that mean literally we have to be martyred on a cross? No, not necessarily. Death by human cruelty is not God's intentional will at all. But letting go, and I tell you this clearly because this is hard for me. I love control. Letting go. Larry, you laugh too loud, Larry. (laughs) Letting go and laying down for good, all that separates us from who we are intended to be. It feels like the cross and death to us to give up control, to give up self-interest. Letting go of our will to be planted in, in God is painful. Do you know what humus is? Humus is the rich, nutritious soil needed for plants in the garden to grow. Humus is also the rich, nutritious ground of our being that we need to grow. Humus is a word from the Latin meaning ground of our being or and rich earth. Living grounded means that our roots are in, are grounded in God's divine intention for us. On Tuesday morning, we had a great time in the discussion. And Josh helped lead us in this discussion of figuring out who we're created to be. Hard work. But being grounded turns that question around from I got to figure it out to planting our roots and let God bloom that answer through us. Bloom us, grow us where he planted. The entire time of my life, and that's a whole nother sermon, I just was kind of just flopping along. But I believed 
And somehow you look back and you know there was a hand in the whole thing guiding. Living grounded means our roots are in God. But there's another word besides humus. The word humility also is from the Latin meaning grounded. The dictionary tells us that humility can be translated as being rooted, grounded, rooted, humility, discipleship, grounded in Christ, practicing growth in God. These become the serious words then, not only of gardening, being deeply rooted, but of salvation and creation and our personal life. Humility is not a rug, being a rug for people to walk on. In the Judeo-Christian heritage, humility is having a clear perspective and a respect for one's own place in the context of life. It means I am, you and I are, comfortable with where we are, where God has planted us. It means that we recognize that our relationship is to God first and then to others. Our family will not um, feel second place. Our family will have a wonderful, wonderful member. Trust me, your family, your loved ones will not be abandoned because you choose God first. We accept and submit to the grace of being led and we will grow through our roots in God's humility. It's the direct opposite of pride, of, of, of self, of my will, my ego. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, pride is the anti-God state. It's the self directly opposed to God directly opposed to God. Wow. I get that. I struggle. I struggle with pride and judgment. If you hurt or deceive my husband or my children, I can hold a mean on for a long, long time. I can forgive you easier if you hurt me than if you hurt one of them. However, that mean on just shuts me off. Shuts me off not only from growth, it leads me to death, but it shuts me off from being able to forgive or to ask for forgiveness. So, that, that mean on leads me right into death. So, it's in vital importance to us to keep into knowledge of our roots, where we're planted and who we are planted in. And if it's pride, if it's Aminon, it we ain't going to grow. Leslie Weatherhead wrote in his book, Time for God, that life is not what happens to us, but life is our reaction to what happens to us. 
If we're rooted in self and the muck of resentment and rebellion and self-pities, including pride, how can we grow? Luke tells us that Jesus grew up maturing in physical strength and increasing in wisdom and that the grace of God rested on him. Well, that's the goal God has for us in our intended design, being the people we are created to be, growing in the humus of our spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional life. That's the lesson, very, very, very primary lesson, and I apologize to all of you who knew all of this. But now I've got some stories to tell. What does this mean? What does it mean in life? I was a preemie, born in 1944, which back then was a little risky. However, I lived, thank you. But as a preemie and growing up with the leftovers of the effect of my premature birth, growth was hard for me. But with my daddy's help, And with my father's help, I grew through the hardness of life. Repeat, I did it with help. We must remember that even if we are born strong and think we're strong, we need help. Now, my birth name is Elizabeth Josephine Burmeister. 28 letters that took my father month after month after month to teach me how to spell. My father was my life. It was my father who brushed my hair every single morning. It was my father who always believed in me. To him, he saw something in me. And I was not that cute but dumb little girl that a teacher wrote and sent home in a letter. I knew God from birth. Maybe even before, I don't know. But, but I, knew be, I knew God before the concept of God was taught to me. Now, the Hebrew definition, I didn't find this out till I went to seminary, so don't think, so I, I just gonna tell you this, And I think it's what you call a divine joke. So Elizabeth means, I found out, Elisheba, God is my oath and witness. Josephine means (laughs) God raises or blesses. Well, my parents didn't know any of this, and and they named me a family name. But think about it. Elizabeth Josephine is what, unbeknownst to me, I responded to in my life. Let me tell you, being the first woman in a seminary professor's class wasn't any fun. I call it divine humor. Mom called it, she's different. I spent all my young years literally growing in my daddy's shadow. We worked in the garden together all day, spring, summer, and fall. And every night as the sun went down, we'd just sit quietly and look at the garden, how it was growing and listening to the night. I see now 
that these times were actually formidable lessons in, yes, growing a garden, but also more. They were lessons in how to grow a person. These were lessons in how to even grow a congregation. These were lessons about listening to God in prayer. In all of life, we need to grow to become that original divine intention of our creation. That's the lessons. Dad's flower garden grew because of intention, because of care, and because of nurture. How do our lives grow? Intention, care, and nurture. So let's look at these things. Intention. Before any flower gardening happens, a decision must be made to want a garden. Now, making that primal decision by its very nature foretells of all of the hard work ahead. Anybody's ever grown a garden, you know it doesn't just happen. This holds true of a flower garden, and it holds true of a life. Care. The next thing to do to grow a garden is to assess the strengths and the weaknesses of the garden's past. Daddy would study and study all winter long his plans, his notes, what went well in the Washington, D.C. area, and what didn't. He'd pour over the catalogs, dream books, the Sears catalog for those of you. He'd pour over the seed catalogs, thinking about what to plant. Now, I need to tell you here, the only thing allowed in the garden were flowers. Every year, as sure as spring, summer, day, night flowed, mother would beg for three tomato plants. <laughs> My father believed the tomato plant to be poison, that tomatoes are poison, that nightshade family. And he would stick her three tomatoes right out at the edge by the garbage cans. <laughs> It was so funny. So it's a flower garden that he worked on. If we can be honest with ourselves, we must do this as well. We must study scripture. We must plan and we must review our lives regularly. And we must ask for help. I might have been just a little girl, but I was there to help, and God was there to create. The call to discipleship in Mark begs us to ask for divine help as we grow in discipleship. Help is given. It's given to you and me. Do you know how? The Holy Spirit in your baptism the Holy Spirit in my, that same Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ's baptism was given to us in baptism. That Holy Spirit that turned the world upside down on Pentecost 
is given to us. We don't have to figure out life alone. We have help. And with help, we can follow. So, with help, Dad indeed would rake and straighten and till that garden bed every spring. He'd plant, then he'd feed and water, and in a garden bed providing for nutritious soil and good water, things just grew. It was just amazing. And if we can be honest with ourselves, we know we must rake out the rocks and the boulders that are in us. We must till our soil and be honest with ourselves to make room for the air and the nurture of God who is in our roots. If we're not deeply rooted in this hummus, humus. Actually, I spell it out, humus, in here because I'm always going to say hummus. If we're not deeply rooted in the humus of God, how are we going to be humble? We must feed on him at Eucharist. I mean that just as if I was a Roman Catholic. I believe in the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must bathe in the waters of forgiveness and of acceptance from God that is offered us through our baptism. We must remember our baptism. Do we spend any time doing that? It wasn't a one-time event, but it's an ongoing event in our lives. Hear me clearly now. There is only one baptism needed, only one, if it's done in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To me, it's blasphemous me to rebaptize as some churches require. But I think it's also easy for us to forget that we are in fact baptized. In Israel, my last trip, the group I was in, there were two women who had been taking instruction in a local church in Dallas, Texas, and they came to Israel to be baptized in the Jordan. And it was my privilege to be able to do that at the site they say Jesus was baptized. But there were about 15 other members then of the group who wanted to be baptized too. And I said, no. I said, no. No, 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 no. But together we created a service of remembering our baptism. A service where those who loved us enough or those who surrounded us enough brought us to the baptismal font or pool. Do you spend any time thinking about that in your life? The honor of having been baptized and receiving that grace. When you do, when you do remember, it makes it easy to go out. Dad's garden and his gardening advice was not to be kept to himself, nor was the, the flowers themselves. He published in this book 
how to do what he did. And mother would take these beautiful, beautiful flowers and she would create beautiful arrangements. And yes, we always had one on the dining room table, but day in and day out, she'd take these arrangements to people in need, people who needed comfort, people who were alone. Neither my mother or my father thought that their garden was for their enjoyment alone, but to be shared. How about you? Are you ready to go out and share your life? Is this congregation, which is a beautiful bouquet of all these different flowers put together in arrangement, ready to go out to bring comfort to another? That's God's intention. A family, a human family. Wow. Well, one more story and I'm done. Should I be done by now? Advanced from my childhood years in the garden with my daddy to 1979. That is a whole other something, the story of how I came into ministry. I was appointed by my bishop to a specific church. I guess you'd call it to troubleshoot there. At the time, why this was needed, I don't know. But when the answer to the trouble was uncovered, the cause was obvious. And why the cabinet hadn't figured it out, I will never know. I think it's another one of those divine jokes in my life. It was September 1979, just three months into the appointment. It was 11 o'clock at night. I was home, sitting at my desk, and writing a letter to my bishop. And this is what I wrote. Dear Bishop Brian, the growth is the evidence of life, and this church is dead. I went to bed. I was tired and feeling utterly defeated. I was stuck in some kind of toxicity, and it was frightening. The next morning, I awoke to find the letter sitting there. Had I indeed written these ugly words? Yep. Did I mail the letter? No, no, thank God there's no internet back then. Think of how much trouble people get into in the middle of the night <laughs> with tweets and uh, emails. But I said out loud, I remember just screaming at my books, I can't do this. So all I could do that morning was pray and plead and try to listen. I tried to get out of myself. In fact, help did come. It came as the hours and the days continued on. I didn't run. I sat in the sanctuary alone time and time again because this congregation thought that the sanctuary was haunted. Yet praying there in the middle of the hauntings, God led me or grew me into understanding. The first thing I pondered was, I'm not wise, I'm not a you know, profound person, so where in the world did growth is the evidence of life and this church is dead come from? It's a true statement. If the body of Christ is the church, how can a church be dead? Something 
it's mixed up here. And then I finally concluded that my earthly father and my holy father were ganging up on me once more, and I began to remember the lessons from the garden, which were indeed lessons about growing a life or a congregation. Now, what, have I, what are the words I've used to describe this congregation so far? Dead, toxic, haunted. It's a sick situation, isn't it? How do I approach a sick garden bed? Once again, the answers are found in the simple gardening skills, deciding to do the task, get help with the task, assess and study what's needed, and do the hard work. So when I arrived to this church, what I found there was similar to the stories of the disciples on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, These people were frightened, they were in grief, and there'd never been an Easter morning for them. I eventually learned their story, and which I believe should have been obvious to the higher-ups. Ten years earlier, a beloved pastor, a 53 years old, died of a massive heart attack. They grieved. They grieved with his wife, and they grieved terribly. And so the bishop appointed a 33-year-old man and his wife. Those were the days where they were teams, you know. The very first year of the 33-year-old man's appointment, he had a massive stroke. The congregation got behind his wife, and for three years they helped her in pastoral care and ministry. And after three years, the congregation began to look. The young man was never going to come back from the stroke well enough to work again. What were they to do? Half of the church wanted to remain faithful to the woman who'd given her life. Half of the church wanted to move on and get another pastor. And you might as well just pour poison down that center hall. And they began. The next pastor came and lasted one year. The next pastor came and lasted one year. The next pastor came. Seven pastors in ten years. They were bullied or shunned. And the bishop couldn't figure this out. I don't know. See why I think this is kind of a divine joke. I didn't know this, but I found this out. And I firmly believe it was God's will that there will be an Easter at this church one day. So, decision, I'll do this. I'll stay, I'll work in this garden. I will be rooted here until I am moved. I looked to Jesus. What a struggle he had in the desert with the devil. Well, struggle in the desert and then with the devil. But he came out of that stronger. So I thought, okay, this is a struggle. I don't have any answers. I'm no expert. I prayed and I listened. And that's all I did, prayed and listened. I stayed. 
However, that's not all you can do. At some point, you've got to commit, right? You've got to commit to doing it. So, I invited in experts. I had people come in to preach. We held classes. We held healing services for forgiveness, for growth, for whatever anybody needed. We worked hard. We even had an evening with the funeral director. And that's all good, but that's not it, is it? That's not the answer. It needed to become enfleshed. I needed to want to become one of them. You see, there not only pastors had to hide and left, but times they were a changing. Military families were now moving into this garden, uh, to this um, farming and um, uh, cattle community. Section 8 housing was brought to this community. The new pastor was a woman. They didn't know what to do, and we were off to a rocky start. I conducted the funeral of the local bar owner. She wouldn't do that, would she? Mm-hmm. I let my daughter befriend his daughter. And Susan tells me today she would hide in the bushes so that nobody in the community would see her as this little girl would now report home to mom after school, mom who's now running the bar, and get two Coca-Colas for them to share. But she knew that her presence around the bar would bring hardship on me. Surely, I'm the pastor of this Methodist church. I wouldn't do anything with non-churched people or with other than Methodists. Yep. Yep. There was one family who the man had never known Jesus Christ, knew nothing about Christianity, and during Lent, we watched the television program Jesus of Nazareth together, week after week, installment after installment. I don't care what you say. It was a way to start, a way to start the conversation with this man. And you know what? He gave his life to Christ, and he was baptized. Now, he's no longer a member of the church because one of the church members swindled him, and uh, he walked away from the church in disgust. But it was was a privilege for me to watch a person bloom in Jesus Christ. I had to become trusted. How in the world to do that? In the morning, I'd get up and I'd walk downtown to the cafe in town, and I'd join the coffee clutch in town. And it's there where I heard the news of the day, i.e., the gossip. From there, I walked back uptown to the post office to collect the mail, but also to collect the news of the day, the gossip at the post office. Then I'd go to the office and ask my beloved, trusted secretary, church secretary, Shirley, 
what did all this news mean? And she'd fill me in on the background. So now I knew some of what was going on as I spoke to people. At lunch, I'd go to the other cafe on the edge of town where the farmers and the ranchers and the cowboys ate lunch. And really, that was a lot of fun. Did you know if you bite the ear of a wild stallion, he'll stand still so you can get on him? <laughs> they talked me into driving tractor in the tractor pool at the county fair for two years. First year I came in second, second year I came in first. I said, quit while you're ahead, no more. Do you know why they wanted me to do that? Because you weigh the tractor before the event, then you weigh the tractor with the driver on, and then you find out how much the pastor weighs. <laughs> but I was joining, I was joining their way of life. I had to confront the deaths, the deaths that happen in every congregation. There was the senior in high school, captain of the cheerleading squad, who was killed on Christmas Eve by a drunk driver. Christmas Eve. How do you tell a high school, a family, on Christmas, their beautiful daughter? not only is dead, but there is the news of God to be found in that. I had to face an elderly woman who just wouldn't die. I'm not hard-hearted. For a week, every night in the middle of the night, this family would call, Mom, is, this is the night. I'd get the children up, wrap them up, take them to the hospital, put them back to bed on the lounge, in the lounge of the hospital and wait. Five nights this happened. Finally, one night, as I came off the elevator, my son, my dear son, looked up and said, Mom, is she dead yet? <laughs> I wanted, I just thought, oh, we've lost it now. And the family behind me started to laugh. <laughs> yes, she died that night. And I knew in their laughter, somehow, I had become one with them. Now, I'm using I. I didn't do all of this. I look back now and think, how do you raise two children and, and be in ministry and have no husband and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. But I look back and a hand guided and a heart cared and took me where I was to go. My friends, I have um, severe bone degeneration. I have some pretty bad arthritis. I can't hold the hymnal. Sometimes that's why Larry and I are sitting down because I can't hold the hymnal open. Um, one morning when I woke up, I just thought, oh, I hurt. I'm not going to do another day in pain. And at that very moment, as loud as if Larry were shouting now, I heard the phrase, I will praise my maker while I breath. And I thought, 
where is that? That's in scripture somewhere. Where is that? And without thinking, I get up out of bed. Forgot that I didn't want to get up. Get up out of bed. Go to scripture. It's not in scripture. Of course, it's a classic Methodist hymn. In fact, on the last night of John Wesley's life, his biographer says, as he lay dying, he sang every one of those verses out loud clearly. And then as the end came, they heard him whispering, I'll praise, I'll praise. What a great way to replace pain, but with praise. And that's become my new mantra. So I close tonight, today, with this. As you can tell, I'm an idiot. I I close with this. Um, Your ground of being is God. Your life that you live is God. And God will live it through you. In humility, your strength is God. Your purpose is God. That's who you were created. Your praise is God. So be it.